My name is Anjanette Walshauser, and um, I'm excited that this is, not excited that this is the last week, but I'm excited that I get to be here with you guys to kind of close out this um, summer series that we have done here um, with Women in the Word, and it's been fun to be able to look at some of these um, books of the Bible that we haven't necessarily spent as much time in. Some of the smaller books that maybe when we're reading through scripture, we kind of pass over. And we've, we've been able to um, look at Titus, and we've been able to look at Philemon. And tonight, we're going to finish out the series with Jude. And the, the theme that I really have seen as we've gone through is living out our faith taking what God's Word says and living it out in our day-to-day life, whether that is within the church, within the body of believers, whether that is um, in setting up a healthy church, whether that is in interpersonal relationships and being able to extend the love and forgiveness that we have received with Christ. We looked at that last week and, and how we really have to take what God says and live it out in our day-to-day life. And that's what we're going to be looking at again tonight in Jude. Because what Jude um, really shows us in his letter is that we are held to um, a place where we are expected to get off the sidelines and to be a part of the battle. To be a part of this um, fight for our faith to protect it. Because we live in a world, right, where... um, There are people who want to tear down who God is. They're wanting to tear down what the truth of Scripture is. And we need to be a part of fighting to protect that which we hold so precious. So I think what a great way to end our series here. It's kind of setting us up for as we go out in the summer for the rest of the summer and into our lives and being able to say, we need to be equipped. We need to be ready, especially in light of all that is happening in our world um, today. In these last couple of weeks across the nation and in Texas, and that we have the opportunity to stand up and say, this is what I believe, and I am equipped to be able to do so. Um, You know, I became a Christian when I was 16 years old. I've shared my story um, before when I've taught and, and with some of you, but I just wanted to to kind of go in again about how this, this struggle that sometimes we deal with, that all of us deal with, right? Where we've got almost one hand with God's grace and one hand in the world. I came to Christ when I was 16 years old, and I um, was a really typical rebellious teenager at the time. I was... Um, The most important person in my life was me, and everything that I wanted to do was really to have as much fun as possible. That was my goal in life. And so when I first came face-to-face with who God was and the fact that he wanted to have a relationship with me, um, I was told that God wanted to have a relationship with me, but he couldn't because of my sin. And for me, I knew what my lifestyle was. And it was very easy for me to be able to recognize, okay, I'm the reason. I'm the problem between me and God. And then I began to understand that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and take my consequence on him for the whole purpose for me to have that relationship with God. That was the entire purpose of Jesus coming was to reconcile us back to the Father. And so I trusted Christ when I was 16 years old, But honestly, the people who were in my life over here that I spent the majority of my time with probably didn't have any clue that everything about my heart had changed because my lifestyle didn't really change. I was in the middle of high school, and the thing that, again, was most important to me was fitting in, having an identity, being liked. And I felt like that if I continue, um, if I change everything, nobody's going to like me. And you know when you're 16 years old, you want everybody to like you. I mean, I'm 40, almost 42, and I want everybody to like me, right? So that hasn't changed so much about me. But what I was dealing with in this situation was I was about to go off to college, and I had spent about two years really walking between here with God's grace and here with my worldly friends. So it was the summer before I went off to college, And I was driving home. I remember exactly where I was. You know, you have those moments in your life. I know exactly where I was. I know it was hot, and I didn't have enough money to fill my car up with gas, and so the windows were down. There was no AC. 
and I put in the, um, this mixtape that my friend had made for me. Remember mixtapes? Um, and so I put it in, and the first song that I heard was Amy Grant's song. Now, I was not somebody who listened to Christian music. I was somebody who listened to punk, heavy metal. That was my life, okay? And so I, I'm listening to Amy Grant, never having heard her before, and the song that comes on is I Have Decided. Does anybody remember that song? And, and the words of the song that really hit me is, I have decided I'm going to live like a believer, turn my back on the deceiver, I'm going to start living for the Lord. And I just started crying and crying out physically and crying out to the Lord and saying, Lord, that's what I want to do. I want to live like a believer. I want people to actually know that I stand for you. And by no means have I done so perfectly since then. But that really was a turning point in my life where I said, I'm not going to walk this line straddling between God's grace and the world's view of who I am. I'm going to say, this is who I am. I'm identified with Christ. I'm going to be different. And God uses Jude, I believe, to tell us the same thing in a lot of ways. Because sometimes we, as Christians, don't really want to be part of the battle. We really want to kind of have everything that we want, kind of that whole have our cake and eat it too, but we want to kind of stick our head in the sand and say, I don't want to think about this battle that's going on around me. I don't really want to participate in that, and Jude isn't going to let us off tonight. He's going to, he, what he's going to tell us tonight is that we need to contend for the faith, that what God has given us through Jesus Christ is precious. And it is valuable enough for us to protect it. And that's what we're going to look at um, tonight as we see how Jude encourages us to be all in. So if you'll turn with me to um, Jude in the, the second to last book of your Bible. Okay? It's 25 verses. It's not very big, but I tell you what. Jude is a man of passion. And he has stuck... So much in this letter. There is so much here where he references who God is throughout history. And so we're going to have an opportunity to kind of go through as much as possible on this. And some of it I'm going to give you some verses for you to look up on your own so that you can get a better grasp of all that he's telling us here. Um, okay, who is Jude? Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. Okay? He... Um, Obviously, their father is different. Jesus is the son of God. Um, Jude is his parents. It's kind of a good one, right? Jude, um, his parents are Mary and Joseph. And he is listed in the New Testament. Maybe you had a chance to go through and look at some of those verses. He's always listed last. And so most likely he was the youngest, right? Those of us who are the youngest in the room always kind of get the last. But that's okay. Um, he was always referred to as Judas a lot of times because that's his full name. He went by Jude. Um, it's helpful for us in the fact that it doesn't confuse us that he is not the disciple that betrayed Jesus. There's another one of Jesus' brothers named James. And um, he's very familiar to us in the fact that we, there's another book in the Bible that is James. And Kathy, didn't we do that last summer? We, two summers ago where we studied James. And what's interesting to me is we look at Jude and we look at James and both of them are very similar in their writing. Both of these men are incredibly passionate. And you think about why are they so passionate? They're the brother of Christ. And when he was here on earth, when Jesus walked on this earth, Jesus' family didn't really support him completely. There were times where they thought he was crazy. They didn't understand exactly what it is that he was doing. And so it wasn't until we see in Acts that Jude stands along with the disciples and the apostles and he stands for Christ. So imagine if you can, your brother is the Messiah. You doubted him when he was here on earth. And then you've realized that he is your savior. You can imagine why he'd be passionate. 
You can imagine why he would tell us that we have to contend for this faith because it is so incredibly precious. It's everything that we have in our life of who Jesus is and what the relationship that we have with God the Father is. So he's a passionate man. He also is a man who would go through and he would travel to the different churches that were being established in this, during this first century time. He was, the book of Jude was written most likely around 67 A.D., Okay, And so this was a letter that was written as he would go around to the different churches and he would teach. And we don't know exactly who the recipients of this letter are. Possibly it was written to one particular church and then it just got passed around. Um, We aren't sure. And we don't know exactly the events that led up to him writing this. We know that we're going to find out as we go through today that it involves false teachers, right? But there's lots of opportunities. Many theologians have lots of different opinions about where exactly this fell in the time of what they were dealing with and what Jude specifically was addressing. But for our purposes today, it doesn't really matter exactly what the false teachers what part they were from, because we all can deal with, understand and relate to the fact that there are false teachers, right? Everything that Jude has here in this letter not only applies to the first century church, but very similar to Titus and to Philemon, it applies to our life today. And who Christ is makes a difference in how we live our life. And the false teachers today are doing the same thing in the fact that they're trying to distort the character of God. Another thing about um, Jude that I think is important for us to understand, that's a little bit unique to the book of Jude or to this letter, is that when Jude is writing, he refers to things that we really don't find a whole lot of information about in the rest of Scripture. Okay, remember, this is during when the, the church is first being established, and there are lots of people who are traveling along and sharing truth in these churches. There are letters that are being sent out. There are um, oral traditions of, of history that have been passed down from generation to generation, not all of which is included in the Bible that we have today. This book was written, or this letter was written in 67. The Bible that we have today was canonized in 397 A.D. So several years later, a couple hundred years later, is when a group of men over years, lots of um, meetings and opportunities to be able to decide through the Holy Spirit what will be included in God's revelation to us. In the Bible. If that's something that's interesting to you, I would suggest that you find a reputable reputable source and read about how God put together the canon of scriptures that we have here. It's an amazing story and it's a testament to God's divine hand. But as we study Jude tonight, I want you to be aware that there's going to be a couple of verses that he's referring to that isn't included here. And so we don't want to be distracted. When those things and go, well, I've never heard that part of the story before. I wonder what happened. Well, I don't know what happened. And we aren't going to be able to talk about what happened. We'll have to wait till we get to heaven and find out the rest of the story. But for this purpose, we'll be able to see what's the point that Jude is making. So we're going to start off in um, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, we've already talked about, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Okay, so this verse right here, verse 3 is the main idea for the entire book. What Jude wants to do is he wants to write about the salvation that we all share and that he's excited about, that we all are excited about, the good news. But because of the events, he's saying, I need to urge you to contend for the faith. Now, I don't know, maybe it was the, um, the idea of contend, and the thing I think of is like a contender for the boxing. You know, so I think about this fight, and it's somebody who's kind of up for the challenge. And that's what I believe that Jude is telling us here. He's asking us to be up for the challenge to protect the faith that has changed our life. And that's why the title on your outline is, Our Faith is Worth Fighting For. And 
we have a mission today that we've been given. And it's kind of like that Mission Impossible thing. Whether you, whether you choose to accept it or not, we have a mission, right? The thing is, it's not Mission Impossible because it's, everything is possible with Christ. So this mission that we are equipped to handle is to fight for the faith in the midst of the false teachers, whether they were in this first century church with Jude or whether it's today right here in Fort Worth, Texas. We have everything that we need to be equipped to be part of the battle. And so the first part of this mission is, you can see on your outline, there's three major points on that. You're going to defend the faith, we're going to strengthen ourselves, and we're going to be merciful to the weak. The first part is to defend the faith. And if we look at verse 4, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. These are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license of immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. There is a battle, and it is out to, the enemy is out to malign the truth of God. And first, in 2 Corinthians, we are told that we live in a battle. It says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We're in a battle, and it's the spiritual realm that the enemy wants to take out the church, wants to take out the truth wants to divide us, and we have to be equipped to know what we're standing on so that we can be engaged and be a part of this battle. So the first um, blank there on your outline, false teachers seek to change God's grace and deny God's son. Because God's grace is that we have unmerited favor, that God has given us something that we don't deserve through Jesus Christ. And so if we're going to change God's grace, if we're going to distort that in any way, there's no other choice than that denies Jesus Christ. Because if we're going to change God's grace and say that is anything other than the free gift of God to save us from our sins, it's denying and cheapening what Jesus did on the cross. Now, what these false teachers were doing, if you look down to um, the next part there, they're godless men who change the grace of God into a license for immorality. Now, as I read this, words that I hear today echo in my mind. Because I've heard several people say, you know what, God loves you and he wouldn't want you to be unhappy. God loves you, and he wouldn't want you to have to go through this hard time. He understands how much you have on you right now. It's okay. It's okay to walk back over here towards sin. That is wrong. And that's what the false teachers were teaching here. They're saying God's grace forgives you. Nothing can snatch you from God's hand. You are free. You've got a ticket to do whatever you want to do. That cheapens God's grace. It changes and denies the Son of God. And we have to stand against that. The second point on defending the faith is remember God has already won the war. We can see in the beginning of verse 4 there, for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago. Um, There are places all throughout the Old Testament that prophesy about false teachers. Just one of the many I thought fit here well was Jeremiah 5:12 through 14. They have lied about the Lord and they said he will do nothing. No harm will come to us. We will never see sword or famine. And then it says the prophets are but wind and the word is not in them. So let what they say be done to them. And then it goes on to say that God will make their words in their mouth a fire and the people will be the wood that will consume them. God will not be mocked. He takes sin seriously. He sent his son to die for our sins. He's going to take it seriously. And the thing that Jude wants us to remember here is that God has already won the war. We know what happens in the end. He's coming back, and he is going to throw Satan into the eternal lake of fire, along with all of the false teachers will be condemned. Okay, But what Jude wants us to do also is he wants us to remember that God's taken care of this in the past. And so Jude does an excellent job of reminding us 
different places in the Old Testament um, where God has dealt decisively with those who have gone against him. So in verses 5 through 7, Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord has delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. So you can see on your outline, the first Old Testament example is Egypt. Okay, we don't have time to go back into Egypt and talk through all of that. So if you want to, jot this down. Exodus 16 through 20 and Numbers 13 and 14. Exodus 16 through 20 and Numbers 13 and 14. And basically what was happening is this is the time when Moses took the Israelites out of Egypt when they were enslaved, right? They go through the... um, Red Sea, God gives them um, enough to eat, they grumble and complain, they don't like it. Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments, they grumble and complain, they don't like it. They make a, a golden calf, they worship him, God takes them to the promised land. They go in, they say, yeah, it's great, milk and honey, wonderful, but did you see the people that live there? We can't fight them, no, I'd rather go back to slavery. And God says, enough. He says that you, this generation will die out and will not be able to experience the rest because God deals seriously with our sin. The second example we have in verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for judgment on the great day. Okay, this is our first example where we don't have a whole lot in Scripture to help us understand what he's talking about, okay? And what this is, is talking about the angels and the origin of where Satan is. Many theologians believe that this is referring to that. When they were in heaven and they rebelled against God and God cast them out of heaven and they were in eternal darkness. These are the angels who saw the light, lived every day within the light of the Lord to be taken from them, never to experience that again. And eventually their fate is the lake of fire. God deals decisively with sin. The third example here, Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. These three serve as an example for those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Okay, Sodom and Gomorrah, write this down. If you would choose to go back and look at it, Genesis 18 and 19. It's a fascinating story. When you, when you watch and see Abraham going back and forth with God in order to redeem um, the city where his nephew Lot lived. But the thing is, is that Lot at this point, who lives in Sodom and Gomorrah, is so entrenched with the perversion that is around them that God literally has to send angels to take him by the hand and run him out of this burning city because God deals with sin. And he doesn't take it lightly. And Jude reminds us that God has done that in the past. He is fully capable of doing it at the time when Jude wrote this. And we need to be reminded God is fully capable of taking care of that, that go against him today. And he is going to win the war in the future. Now, the the next part under defending the faith is that we must know the enemy. We need to know what we're dealing with in the battle. And so some of the characteristics of the false teachers of the enemy I've listed there for you. They reject authority and play with sin. They're deceptive leaders who seek to serve themselves. And so in these verses, the largest chunk of this letter Jude uses some amazing language, descriptive language, in order to describe who these false teachers are. So let's walk through that together, starting in verse 8. In the same way, these dreamers, um, these false teachers, who would actually say, God has given me a revelation in my dream that is greater than this. God's revelation is enough. The same way the dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, who was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, here's another one of those stories we don't know a whole lot about. But the point is, you have Michael, who is the archangel. He is the highest in the ranking of the angels, and he is disputing with Satan himself for Moses' body. You would think that Michael, he has some authority, right? He is used to doing these battles. And he doesn't take it upon himself to rebuke Satan. 
He says, the Lord is the authority, and he is the one who will rebuke it. And Jude is showing us the contrast in the fact that Michael, who might have had a bit more authority, even he recognized it. Whereas these men, if we go on into verse 10, these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. And what things they do understand is by instinct. Like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. When we look at false teachers today, or we, whether it is a church that happens to have a, a pastor who is teaching untruth, we are blessed in that we don't have that here. Kathy did a great job talking about the elders in our, um, when she was talking about Titus, when we set up a healthy church, part of the elders' role is to protect us from the false teachers who would come in. But there are false teachers that aren't just in the pulpit. There are false teachers that are in media. There are false teachers that are in pop culture. There are false teachers in the government. There are false teachers that maybe sit across from you at Starbucks and tickle your ears with what you want to hear rather than the truth of God's word. And usually what they say is by instinct. That's what he's talking here. Not because of the spirit that is within them. Because it just makes sense to them. But they don't really understand what it is that they're talking about. And then we go on in verse 11. And, and Jude says, Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed to the prophet for Balaam's era. And they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Three more examples that Jude gives us in the Old Testament of the characteristics. So let me go through those very quickly. Um, the first one, Cain, is Genesis 4, if you want to look at that later on. Cain is the son of Adam and Eve, okay? Generally, the story goes, part of this history is that Cain and Abel were both asked for a worship offering, God, to present God a worship offering, Cain brought grain and um, fruits of his labor, and, and Abel, who was a shepherd, brought um, a, a killed animal to sacrifice before the Lord. And God said, Cain's I reject, Abel's I approve of. And, and Cain's response was to be downtrodden. And look on your, your verse sheet, um, Genesis 4, 6 through 7. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. So God gives him a warning, but Cain doesn't heed that warning. He rejects that authority. What does Cain do? He kills his brother. He doesn't master that because he is the ultimate authority. He is the one that he answers to himself, not to God. The second example we have here is they rushed for profit to Balaam's era. And this you can find in Numbers 22. Again, another fascinating part of our history where Balaam actually is um, hired out for profit in order to curse Israel. And he is, a, um, he is a prophet himself, and what he chooses to do is to listen to the king who gives him money, and God tries to stop him with a donkey talking to him. And Balaam says, no, that's not what I'm going to do. We can see more insight into um, 2 Peter 2.15 about how Balaam, what really motivated him. They left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. He served himself. He was out for his own profit. The third example we see here in verse 11 is Korah's rebellion. And you can find that in Numbers chapter 16. This again was during the time of Moses and Aaron when they were wandering in um, the wilderness before going in ultimately into the promised land. And Korah became um, dissatisfied with their leadership. And he began to say, I think I'm the one who should be in charge. And so he got a bunch of people to come up and have this rebellion against the leaders because he wasn't willing to trust who God had placed in authority. And so many times, again, we see the theme here that false teachers desire for themselves to be the ones who are elevated, that they are the ones who are the ultimate authority in their life. And they lead others deceptively. 
Now in verses 12 through 13, we get to see some um, pretty amazing figurative language um, from Jude. These men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you only without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. You sense his passion about what he thinks about these false teachers? The, um, the, the one illustration that I think stuck out to me was this whole idea of the clouds without the rain. We in Texas know what it's like to go through the summer, right? It's not a um, super unusual thing for us to have, what, 80, 100 days of no rain during the summer. And, and, and we hear the, the farmers who, get, um, who need that for their crops. And they see a cloud in the sky and they're hopeful. And then the wind blows that cloud away never to bring what they were looking for. And I think that was a great illustration that Jude gave us here because these false teachers promise peace. But when you promise peace without the Prince of Peace as a part of it, it comes up empty. The promises that these teachers were bringing were nothing because they were based only on their own instinct, not on the truth of God. And Jude wants us to realize who these false teachers are so that we can recognize them. And the, um, the thing about Jude also that I've come to really appreciate as I've studied this is that he gives us these things that are hard. And then he says, but remember Remember, God is there. And that's what he's done here. He's just laid out all this stuff about the false teachers, and it can feel pretty overwhelming. It can feel very big. And then in verse 14, he says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, just meaning the generation down, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts that they have done in the ungodly ways of all the harsh words of the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Did you get the point? They're ungodly. And God's going to take care of them. So lest you be concerned when you're thinking about these false teachers, God's got it. He's taken care of this, and we need to be faithful for where he has right now. Because what we're going to do in part of our mission is we're going to defend the faith. And we're going to do that by remembering there is a battle, remembering that God's already won the war, and we're going to remember that by being aware of what the false teachers are doing. And then in verse 17 through um, 19, Jude really calls us to persevere in here, and he says, this is, um, oh, I forgot, Verse 16, just in case you hadn't gotten it, these men are grumblers, fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. He wanted to make sure we get who those false teachers are, right? So then in 17 through 19, he's calling us to persevere. And he's calling us to continue to press on and remember what the motive of the false teachers are. If you look here in, um, in verse 19, he says, these men who divide you, that is their goal is to divide you. Jude is telling us here that we need to be, stand firm and protect this faith that is so precious to us, that is worth fighting for. And he says, these false teachers are going to do everything they can to pull you down to divide the churches, to make you doubt, to make you question, but persevere, hold on. They do not have the spirit. So what do we do? What do we do at this point? We, we are aware of the battle. We know that God's in control. We know characteristics of the enemy. What can we do to be equipped for this battle? And so we see here in... Um, in verse 20, but you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in God's love and wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you, to bring you eternal life. When we come to Christ, our eternal life starts at that moment. 
from this point forward. So he's not saying that he's going to come and bring you eternal life in that sense. What he's saying is that he's going to come and bring you eternal life into the future with that. So the things that we can do to strengthen ourselves, I've broken it down into four different ways. The first one being faith. We need to know what we believe through studying the scriptures. Know what you believe through studying the scriptures. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If we don't know what the truth is, then we can't be able to stand for what God's grace is telling us. We're, we're going to be swayed by what the false teachers are telling us. We have to saturate ourselves with truth. I don't know if you've heard the illustration before. When, um, I've heard this several times about bank tellers and, and when they're studying to um, figure out what counterfeit money looks like. They don't go to a class about counterfeit money. What they do is they spend time with the real money. They count it. They look at it. They touch it. They spend time around it so that when one counterfeit bill gets in with the stack of authentic money, they recognize it like that. And that's the way the false teachers should be with us. We have to strengthen ourselves and be so immersed with truth that we immediately recognize anything that is going to deny God's grace, distort God's grace, and deny God's son. The second um, way that we can strengthen ourselves is to pray in the Holy Spirit. Pray under the direction and with the help of the Holy Spirit. When we pray, we are praying under the authority of the Holy Spirit. God did not leave us here alone when Jesus went back to prepare a place for us in heaven. And Jesus tells us that in... Um, John 14:26 But the counselor the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have said to you. And even the Holy Spirit will pray for us when we don't know what to say. Romans 8:26 tells us that the Spirit himself will intercede for us. The third way that we can strengthen ourselves is love. Keep yourself in God's love through obedience. All throughout scripture, we can see this, this parallel idea between disobedience and unbelief. Because if we really believe that God is who he says he is, and we really believe that he is the one who created all of us, created this world, provided a way back for us to have a relationship with him, and is serious about sin, we're not going to be walking headfirst into sin. If that's where we're going, then we need to go back and go into God's word and say, what does he say about sin and do I really believe that he is who he says he is? John 15:10. if we obey my commands and remain in my love just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. Now, does that mean that we have to earn our salvation in order to keep it? No. That means that because we love our father, we desire to obey him. We desire to be in that fellowship with him. The fourth way that we can strengthen ourselves is hope. Wait for the mercy of our Lord who is coming back. Hope. Hope changes how we live our life, doesn't it? Now we can be so kind of, maybe you've been in this time in your life where you just feel weighed down by your circumstances. And when we remember to look up, when we remember to re that Jesus is coming back for us, and in um, Titus 2, 13 through 14 is a great um, way of stating this. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. We long to do what is good when we remember that he's coming back for us. I found a story I wanted to share with you. Um, 
that I thought did a great job of just talking about what this hope is and how it changes how we live our lives. Um, there's a school system in a large city that had a partnership with the hospital, a children's hospital. And so when there was a, a child who was staying in the hospital for any length of time, they worked with the school and provided a tutor to be able to come in and keep the kids up with their studies. And so this lady had been contacted and said that she um, needed to come in and she needed to help this student. So she went to the school, got the lessons from the teacher, and then went into the children's hospital. And nobody had told her that this boy that she was coming to help was a burn victim. And he was in an incredible amount of pain. And they didn't know whether he was going to live. And so he walked in. The, the tutor walked in to see this boy. And it took her breath away. And the only thing she could think was, well, the teacher told me that he needs to learn noun and adverbs so he won't be behind. So he sat, she sat down next to the boy and she said, I'm here to teach you noun and adverbs so you won't be behind. And she went through and she taught him the lesson. She walked out and she felt like she'd been a failure. Because she thought, I wasn't compassionate. I didn't take into consideration how much pain he's in. So the next day, she was determined to do, go back and do something different. And she walked in, and the nurse stopped her before she walked in and said, what did you say to that boy yesterday? And the tutor began to cry, and she said, I'm so sorry. I know I didn't do the right way. And the tutor said, no. After you left was the first time we've seen him fight back and try to live. And two weeks later, the boy was um, much, doing much, much better, and he explained what the turning point was, and he said, why would they send a teacher to teach me nouns and adverbs if I was going to die? <laughs> it changed the way he lived his life because he had hope. Now, that's a very small example, right? But how many times in our own life are we so focused right here in our own problems that we've forgotten to look up and remember that Jesus Christ is coming back? We have to strengthen ourselves with hope. The next, um, the next point of how we're going to accomplish this mission of fighting for our faith is to be merciful to the weak. So look with me on um, verse 22 and 23. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. We don't live in isolation, right? We live in the church. Thank you, Lord, for letting us live in the church. And there are those of us in this room that are doing pretty well in our walk with the Lord right now. There are those of us in this room that are struggling significantly. And tomorrow, maybe those of us who are struggling significantly will be walking with the Lord very well. And maybe some of those who are walking right well right now, next month, are going to be struggling significantly because everyone in this room has the potential for being the weaker. And we all need to have mercy shown to us. So I think that Jude really divides up these, these weak into three different groups of people, the doubting, the burning, and the dangerous. The first one, it says, be merciful to those who doubt. These are the ones who are hearing the false teachers and maybe, you know, that makes sense. I don't know. It's confusing. And they're kind of waffling back and forth. They're struggling between the two different worlds. And what do we need to do to show them mercy? We need to come and put our arms around them and not judge and condemn them. God's word tells us that we, in 14, Ephesians 4, 14, then we'll be no longer be infants who are tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Every one of us were infants at one point in time in our walk with the Lord. Be merciful to those who are struggling. The second one on here is um, snatch others from the fire. These are the burning. These are the ones who have already left the body of believers. They are already immersed in that lifestyle of sin. And you know who it made me really think about here was Lot. He was living in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And he was surrounded by this sexual perversion. And he didn't want to leave. He was struggling. God sent the angels in, took him by the hand to run him out of there. And sometimes we are going to have brothers and sisters in Christ who are immersed in sin. And sometimes when we're showing them mercy, we're going to get a little singed. 
sometimes it's going to be inconvenient for us. Sometimes it's going to flat out hurt our feelings because they're going to reject us as we're telling them truth and they're saying, you know, God wouldn't want me to hurt. God understands. He'll forgive me. I'm going to walk this way. I know I'm going to heaven. I can't listen to you right now. Don't stop reaching out to those weaker brothers and sisters in Christ who need you to be merciful to them. The third one that I see here is um, to others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. These are the dangerous. There are some people who are um, doubting and need to be shown mercies that are involved in things that are dangerous to us individually as believers. Because I'm not equipped to handle every single set of circumstances. There are some things that if I were to walk into by myself to put my arm around a brother, I am putting myself up to fall into that same temptation. And every one of us have different things that we are more susceptible to. And not one of us is immune. And so what we have to do in these set of circumstances is we need to ask for help. We need to go and find whether it's an elder, whether it's a pastor, whether it's another brother and sister in Christ who can go with us. Because sometimes we need someone else to go with us. And we need to be reminded that we love this person, but we hate even the clothing of sin that they carry. We have a mission today. And this mission is to defend the faith, to strengthen ourselves, and to be merciful to the weak. And what is our battle cry? Our battle cry is God is able. Our God is able. These last two verses. um, To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before the glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Our God is able. He has us right here in his hand and not anything can snatch us. From his hands. It's on your verse sheet, John 10, 28. And also, God is able not only to keep us, God is also able to present us without fault. We all struggle with this sin dance that we do. Paul even says, I do the very thing that I don't want to do. And God is still able to present us without fault. And with joy. And the last verse on your verse sheet, Ephesians 5, talks about when God comes back, we are going to be presented as the bride of Christ without any stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, before we put up our um, papers and close our Bibles, I want to say one more thing to you as we go out into the summer. Where are you? Where are you in this battle? Do you need to just get your head out of the sand and recognize we're in a battle? And you need to stand here with truth? Are you discouraged by the events of the world and you need to remember that God is the one who's in control and that God has this? Maybe you just need to be aware of what the false teachers are trying to do and what their motives are. Maybe you need to strengthen your faith. Maybe you need to be aware and kind and continue to press in with those weaker believers who need our mercy. I'd like for you to look at your outline and see where it says strengthen your faith. And there's there four different points. Faith, pray, love, and hope. Whether you do that now or when you go home, I ask you to consider praying about what does God want me to strengthen myself in with the rest of this summer? Where do I really need to grow? Do I need to grow in knowing what I believe? Do I need to make a commitment that I'm going to read through the Bible every day, not just when we have women in the Word? Do I need to make a commitment to pray and recognize I'm not just praying for whatever it is that I want, but I'm praying under the headship of the Holy Spirit? Maybe if you don't have a study Bible, you go and find one. At the back of every study Bible is a concordance. And it's an alphabetical listing of all the major points that are in Scripture. Maybe you need to spend the rest of the summer looking up the word pray or prayer in the back of your Bible and spend that time seeing what God's Word says about prayer. 
Maybe where you need to work on is your obedience in that love. And that falling more in love with Christ because, and desiring to obey him. Maybe you need to write out on a piece of paper the things that you struggle with and the questions that you need to be asked and give them to a sister in Christ and say, please ask me next week if I've done these things. And if they don't ask you, write them down again and give them to somebody who will. Because we all need accountability. Or maybe the thing that God really wants to impress upon you that you need to work on this summer is hope. Maybe your life circumstances are just more than really um, you can even talk about without tears coming into your mind. And you feel hopeless. And maybe you need to ask God to show you hope and to remind you that he is coming back for us and that it makes a difference in how we live. I want to read the last verse to you um, because I think Jude does an excellent job in this last verse of telling us if there's a false teacher who says anything opposite of who this God is, beware, be warned. Because verse 25, to the only God, we have one God and one God alone. Anyone who says anything differently is false. Number two, we have a Savior. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. It is only through Jesus and every single one of us sins and every single one of us needs a savior. Number three, the glory is for him, not for us. The next one, majesty. There is none that is more majestic because our God is not just the king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And all power and all authority is to him. There is not any portion of the world, any small little inch that is not under God's sovereign control and power. And anyone who says anything differently are going based on their own instincts. And we need to be equipped so that we can be a part of this battle and we can contend for the faith that is so precious to us that it's changed our lives. Let me pray for us. Father God, I love you and I thank you for your word and I thank you for passionate people. I thank you that you have changed our lives and that can make us passionate. Lord, I pray that I would be as passionate as Jude in contending for my faith. Lord, I pray for these women as they go through the rest of the summer. Lord, I pray that you would guide them in where they need to strengthen themselves. We love you, Lord. We want to honor you. Please equip us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.